3. There's two passages I want to read. First of all, Philippians chapter 3. And reading from verse 1. Finally, my brethren, that's about the third time he says it, and he hasn't finished saying it yet. So all we long-winded preachers always like to quote Paul here. <laughs> Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision, who worship in the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, Forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward calling of God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now let's go to Romans. And I want to read again those first few verses in Romans chapter 6. What, reading verse 1 again, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? 
Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also his resurrection. Now that may be slightly different to your Bible, and you'll find what I've done is to leave out the words in italics, which are put in by the translators to give what they think is better sense. Not in the original manuscript, they put them in to get a better flow in English. And I feel particularly here, the force of what the Spirit is saying is blurred by inserting these words. It's not in the likeness of his resurrection. That's not what the Bible says. Certainly, we shall be also his resurrection, which is very different. All right, go on to verse 6 then. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin, once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Amen. Now last time we were together, that is me and you, and I shared with you, and we were going to consider the power of his resurrection. And I did it in two parts, and the first part, those of you who were here, I dealt with this whole glorious truth in the Bible of heredity. And we saw how uh, in Hebrews that Levi is considered to have been there when Abraham offered tithes to Melchizedek. Right? Do you remember that? If you weren't here, you'll have to get the tape. You won't understand half of what I'm saying tonight. That's one of the blessings of the tape. Now, remember that Levi was the great-grandson of Abraham. He didn't exist. He wasn't yet born. And yet, according to Bible logic, which is very different to human logic, according to Bible logic, it was the same thing as if Levi was offering tithes to Melchizedek. Because his forefather, his ancestor, Abraham, was doing it. Therefore, Levi was in Abraham when he did it. Now, is that clear to you? Well, let it sink in. I've said this a number of times and I'm saying it again because I want, to, I want us to get it right into our hearts. So that what Abraham was doing involved his yet unborn great-grandson. Now that's Bible logic. And then the argument goes, that means therefore that Abraham's inferior to Melchizedek, therefore Levi's inferior to Melchizedek. He was involved with him in what he did. Although he didn't yet exist. Now, I sometimes use an illustration, I'll just use it tonight to get this home quickly. I want to get on to the power of his resurrection. And that is supposing your great-grandfather got fed up with the weather and said, I'm going to emigrate to America, right? 
He went to America, bought a piece of land in Texas, struck oil, and soon he had 30 massive oil wells all over his piece of land. What would that make him? It'd make him rich, and it would make him American. What would that make you? It would make you a rich American. <laughs> in other words, the actions of our, this is Bible logic, the actions of our forefathers involve us. And we saw last time we were together that how this in him before the foundation of the world. Just as Levi was in Abraham, yet he didn't exist. He hadn't been born and his parents hadn't even met yet. Or his grandparents hadn't even met yet. <laughs> yet there he was, according to Bible logic, already in the loins of Abraham. Already there, involved with that act of submission to the great priesthood of Melchizedek. So in the same way, I was in Christ before the world came into existence. How about that? And so are you, if you've been born again. And if you have not yet been born again, well, God's invitation to you is that you can come into this now, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. What a tremendous thing. God so foreknew you, so foreknew me, that he's, he'd already put us in Christ. And that which worked against me in Adam now works for me in Christ. And I find that this new life of Christ brings into me whole new principles of working, which are just as relentless, just as certain as the old principles which worked against me in Adam. Now, how does all this happen? It happens through faith, beloved. It, it's, sort of, it's like a, a hidden uh, potential which springs into realisation the moment we press the button of faith. It sort of goes, boom, and off we go. We're now in this whole new thing. Now, just as my sin was real under Adam, so my righteousness is real under Christ. Just as the, the power which worked in me always led me into rebellion and all the things of Adam's race, so I find that the, the power within me now is working for me in Christ. Hallelujah. Now, that's a very quick potted thing of what happened last time, and, and I really want you to get that. It's ever so important. Don't try and understand it. But let it hit you here by revelation. There's a whole great realm of understanding which comes by revelation. Your spirit quickens this. Pooh, how about that? And then gradually it filters up into your mind and your mind sort of is trying to catch up. You may have the best mind in the world, but I tell you, you will never ever comprehend God by reason. But you will by revelation. I'm not suggesting that we... we throw our minds away, but we bring them into submission to the reasonings of God which are shown to us by the Holy Spirit. And I can know a thing in my spirit long before I can explain it in words. And this is the incredible thing. We, used, we had a little servant girl that worked for us for a while in India and she came from the most appalling background. God did wonders in her life, but she was illiterate. She couldn't read a word. And we tried to teach her, but there was a sort of a blockage. She could not understand how to read. <laughs> and yet the amazing thing was that when she came alive in God, was what she could understand spiritually. It was quite incredible. And although she could, in many ways, you would say she was a very, very dim, simple person, and yet 
when she came to want to be baptized, I said to her, I said, now Wendy, please explain to me what you understand this baptism is all about. So she sat down and gave me a first class explanation of what it was all about. She said, well, and she, she came out with it and I thought, well, how did she learn that? Because she'd been taught by God and the Spirit. She hadn't got the jargon, praise God, <laughs> but she got the truth. Now, we find, if we go through the book of Acts, we find a phrase like this recurring again and again, and it's something, you read it in Acts 4, near the end of, of chapter 4, perhaps we'll just look it up there, and this is what I want to spend our time on uh, tonight. Verse 33 of Acts 4. With great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and abundant grace was upon them all. With great power, the apostles were giving witness to the resurrection and great grace was upon them all. Now Paul said in his letter to the Philippians to write the same things to you is no problem to me and for you it's safe. And I know that for some of you who've been in this fellowship for a year or two, we'll be going over a little familiar ground. But I've taught this dozens of times. Every time I do, I get more excited, I think. So I trust God to quicken us all again to get hold of this wonderful truth. And for those who are new in the fellowship, and those for whom we are particularly concentrating on this foundational series, I want you to particularly be alert and get hold of this truth. And that is that the disciples went and bore witness to the witness resurrection of Jesus Christ. It was the thing they kept on about. They kept talking about it, preaching about it, and it was obviously the power which caused them to live such fantastic lives. And you see that Paul, and I read the Philippian letter deliberately because it's, it's almost the last letter that he wrote. It's right near the end of his ministry. And there in chapter 3 he says... This is the one thing that I want. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. Being made, the fellowship of his sufferings and, and being made conformable to his death. That's the one thing I'm after. And I want us tonight to look at this tremendous truth, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The first thing that I want you to note is that the disciples never went anywhere preaching about the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It's recorded only in one Gospel, John 11, but it's not recorded in any of the others, and it was not something they went on preaching about. And the, what we've got to understand is that the power and force of Jesus being raised from the dead is not simply that he really died. And then after three days, he really came alive again. Wonderful as that is, that is not the heart of the power of the resurrection. In fact, the miracle of Lazarus, if that was all that we are meaning in the resurrection of Christ, the miracle of Lazarus was a greater miracle. Because he was dead for four days and his body actually was rotting when Jesus spoke the word, come forth, and he came forth out of that rotting degradation. I always have in my mind a sort of a, you know, one of these cine films, you know, where... where there's been a process going on. There's Lazarus' tomb, body in, in the tomb, and 
and in the, in the tropical countries, they, they, they degenerate very, very quickly. And after four days, as, Mary, as, as Martha said, wow, it'll be absolutely stinking. And there's this whole process of putrefaction. And, and then I imagine there's sort of been like a cine film going on in those last four days. And then Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And as if the thing sort of went in reverse, you know. And you know, like when you see a, a car shattered in pieces and then it all comes back together again, you know, in reverse. <laughs> and I imagine that God, in, that, in that, that one word of command, the whole process of four days was reversed in about two seconds flat. And there he was. And he came forth. Hallelujah. That's the power of his word. And that's a tremendous truth. It's a tremendous miracle. And if that was all we had to praise God, it's something, isn't it? Here is Jesus, who's the Lord of death and life. Tremendous. More than any other religion's got. But even this is not the power of his resurrection. And this is what I want us to understand tonight. Because let's first of all look at the death and raising again of Lazarus and see it against the death and raising again of Jesus. Now Lazarus, I would imagine, was a fairly ordinary sort of man. I guess he had a genuine love for Jesus and wanted with all his heart to please him. That's very evident as you read the scriptures. But like any other man, I guess he had his weaknesses and his shortcomings. And I guess to live with Lazarus was a problem, just as Mar Martha and Mary found it a bit of a strain at times. It comes out in the honesty of Scripture. I don't know what was wrong with Lazarus. Maybe he was uh, a thoughtless sort of chap who just sat there with his dirty boots on the, on the, <laughs> the chair, or, or I don't know, but, or maybe he had a bit of a short temper. Maybe he struggled with impurity. We're not told. But one thing happened was that the day came when Lazarus died. And when Lazarus died, he died bearing Lazarus's sin. And then after four days, he was brought to life again. And the Lazarus that came to life was the same one that died. If he'd had a bad temper before he died, he had a bad temper when he came to life again. If he'd been a, a forgetful, thoughtless person that really tried other people, he was the same. If he smoked tobacco, he probably still did. If he had an unclean mind, it was still there. He was the same. There was no change in Lazarus. Just a glorious miracle that he died and he was brought back to life again after four days. Tremendous. But what we've got to do is we've got to see everything else flows out of that root. The root is that we decide with our forefather Adam that to some degree at least we're going to run our own lives. That's all we have to decide. And immediately we do that, we can guarantee there'll be a harvest of sin. Sin finds its opportunity in the flesh. And flesh at heart is just simply self-life. I will have my way. I may decide that I will be a very, very good Christian. But if the, if the root is in self-effort, I still cannot produce the fruit. That's why religion is useless. I have often had it said to me, especially when witnessing to Hindus and Muslims, they say, well, all religions are the same. I say, yes, they are. They're all useless. <laughs> Absolutely, including Christianity. 
If you've got Christianity down to a simply trying to be good, trying to follow the teachings of Jesus, trying to live a good Christian life, or be a good Christian, then you might as well be a Hindu or a Muslim. It's as useless in the sight of God. Because what you're saying is that by my own effort and strength, I can produce fruit which is acceptable to God, and God says you can't. It's impossible. What we've got to do is to slay the tree, cut it off at the root, and then start again with a new root which will produce new fruit. So Jesus not only took upon himself the fruit of Adam's race, but he took upon himself the root, which is this thing the Bible calls the sin nature. You'll find this progression through Romans. Up to Romans 5, we're dealing with sins. If you like, the fruit, the plurals there. Once we get to Romans 5, and now we've come into Romans 6 particularly, it now becomes singular, sin. It's almost as if sins become personified. We'll praise thee in the midst of my brethren. Already he's sort of through the cross by faith, and he's out the other side to see this vast company of men and women of every tribe and nation who are going to be released from sin, are going to be part of this new race. He can see it even before he's descended into hell, and he's holding on to it by faith. Talk about praising God in difficult circumstances. He was actually praising the Father on the cross, beloved, and he was already laying hold by faith of that which lay the other side of death and resurrection. Oh, wonderful Saviour. And it was like that that he died. It says in Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 9 that he tasted death on behalf of every man. You see, although you and I may die physically, and dear Alma, one of our own beloved members, died very recently, but she didn't taste death. Death had lost its sting, because the sting of death is sin. And for her, death was a door of anticipation and of opportunity. You know, many of you visited her. Where was the sting in it? Where was the terror? It was gone. But Jesus, we're told, tasted death on behalf of every man, because he tasted the bitter sting of death, which is sin. And because as he died, he was bearing more sin by millions of times, more than any other man, so the sting was the greater. And so the travail and agony of death for Jesus was infinitely more than any man has ever experienced. Can you enter into this mystery?
and rose again the same man. Whatever sin he had in his death, or before his death, he had in his being raised again from the dead. But in his death, Jesus, if I can use this phrase just to ram home the point, don't misunderstand me when I say it, but Jesus in his death was the, by far the greatest sinner the world's ever seen. Or perhaps I should say sin bearer. Does that get home the point? But in his resurrection, he was free from sin. Now that's why they couldn't stop preaching about the resurrection. There's mighty, mighty, mighty power here. Hallelujah. Oh, I love Jesus, don't you? Are you grateful to him for what he did? Have you become part of it? That's why we have to know that we're baptised into it. Verse 4 says, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. You see, just as his baptism was an identification with us in our need, so our baptism is an identification with him in his supply of that need. And as I'm baptised into Christ, I am immersed into all that Jesus is and did. Hallelujah. And one of the things that Jesus did, he so totally, so utterly, so completely died to sin that was never ever anything left ever more to do about it all. It was finished in one glorious and terrible complete act. And you, if you've been baptised into Christ, you know what the word baptism means, don't you? We've been over this a number of times. It means to be immersed, it means to be soaked, saturated, plunged in, overwhelmed with... Well, has his death had that effect upon you? If we were buried with him through baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might go to church. No? Study our Bibles. No? So that we too might pray and receive forgiveness. No. So that we too might walk in newness of life. Hallelujah. Isn't that glorious? Now that's what he did. That's the power of his resurrection. Go on to verse 5. For if we have become united in the likeness of his death, Certainly we shall be also his resurrection. Now please don't get deceived by this likeness of. I've told you this again, I'll repeat it tonight. If you go to the little stores around Bombay, you can buy little nail clippers and screwdrivers and spanners and you'll find stamped upon them, made in USA. And then when you get them home, they go rusty in about two minutes or they break. You think, well, this isn't very good. I thought these Americans made things properly. And then you discover that USA stands for the Ulas Nugger Cindy Association. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a few little villages out from Bombay where in little, little huts they make these things and, and then they flood the Bombay bazaars with these things. You'll also find another interesting phrase on a lot of things made as in England. <laughs> with the as very small. Made as in England. 
And you can get Parker pens that look identical to Parker pens, yet they don't work like them. <laughs> Absolutely to the last detail, they look exactly like a Parker pen. And you can buy them for about 50p, but they don't work like Parker pens. And Schaefer pens, they've even got, they're absolutely a perfect imitation, made as in England. Now, what many of us have in our hearts is a theology that we are made, or we've been raised as in the likeness of his resurrection. That's why I believe the translators even have this theology, that's why they put it in, because it just isn't there. And you see, by not coming to this in full assurance of faith, we deny ourselves the power of his resurrection. Now, in the original Greek language, it's just like a, um, a newspaper boy declaring some fantastic news in short cryptic phrases. You know, like, a, like a, when, he, when some new, new stories hit the uh, headlines and, and there's the lad you know, with a, shouting out the, the, the news in some brief sort of phrase. I can't think of a good illustration. England makes 800 for one, or something like that. You know, some think like that. Now, it's the same sort of feel about it. Any man in Christ, new creature, old things passed away, all new. That's exactly how it reads in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And here again, the same cryptic sort of thing. If you're united with him in his death, certainly also his resurrection. Certainly also his resurrection. Alright? And that's what we've got to get hold of. We've got to come to this and say, you, look at yourself in the mirror, you've been raised together with Christ. Now Jesus went through all that in order that you might come to fullness of life in him. Why was he made sin? Why was he made sin? 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says, He who knew no sin became sin, that we might become a little less sinners than we used to be, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And that was the joy that was set before him. He said, Father, to bring forth multitudes of men and women to glory, it's worth it. And that's what kept him. And even on the cross, as that darkness was closing around him, he was already praising God for it. You read Psalm 22. I'll praise thee in the midst of the congregation, he said. I'll leap and jump more than anybody. <laughs> Amen. And the whole purpose was to bring, as it says in Hebrews 2, many sons to glory. Now, says Paul in verse 6, don't you know that our old man, our old self, was crucified with Christ that the body of sin might be destroyed. Do you know that? Do you know it? When you get hold of this and you see the power of his resurrection, see Paul saw it, he said that's worth more than to me than all these worldly honours and standards and qualifications and and a pedigree, even a, a sort of a religious pedigree. It's rubbish, he says. Rubbish! Compared with the excellency of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He says, this is what I want. This is my ambition for life. That I might know him. 
and the power of his resurrection being made conformable to his death. Now you'll notice in verse 5 of Romans 6 that there's a condition. If we have been united with him in a death like his, we certainly shall be also his resurrection. I might say to you, if you come and work for me, and then I'd set out a series of conditions, then, as a result, if you do these things, I'll pay you uh, £25,000 a year. All right, <laughs> just imagination, all right? You report to my company between the hours of 8.30 and 5 or whatever it is and so on and so on. See, there's always a condition. You find in the promises of God there's always a condition. And here the condition is if you have been united with him in a death like his. That's the condition. What was his death? Well, there were two aspects to it. The final part we deal with in Hebrews 6. He died to sin. Once for all, there was a period, there was a point when he became God's great lamb, bearing the sin of the world. But for 33 and a half years, he lived a life of death. And what was the heart of that death? Simply, he would not tolerate for a moment any manifestation of self-life. He never did his own will. It says, although he was the son, yet he pleased not himself. Although he was the son, it says, he learned obedience through the things that he suffered. You, it's easy to obey God when he tells you to do things you like, but it's when he tells you to do things you don't like. That's where the test of obedience is. And so, Christ Jesus lived utterly and totally, it says, for all things are for your sake. Verse 15 I'm reading. For all things are for your sakes that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. You see, there's not only a personal benefit here, but there's a benefit for all mankind here. As we get through in this, and as that life's released, it's going to result in multitudes coming into the same life and grace. that we're, That's how it happened in the early church. Now, it's something we've got to get into. It's uh, something we come into by faith. We don't doubt it anymore. We say, I've been buried with him in his death. Certainly I shall be also his resurrection. If you go down to verse 9 of Romans 6, it says, Jesus died to sin how often? Once. And in as he lives, he lives to God. So reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin and alive to God. Three things you've got to know, verse 3. You've got to know it's personal. That it means you. Do you know that? Secondly, you've got to know that it's past, verse 6. Our old man was crucified with Christ. Thirdly, you've got to know that it's permanent. We don't keep dying every day. We count on the fact that it has happened. And then verse 11 we come to the reckoning or the counting on the fact. It's a, it's a term used in accountancy. When an accountant totals up figures and you never see accountants playing games with money, do you? 
you get the accountant to come in and do the books at the end of your financial year and he says, well, looks to me as if you're three and a half thousand pounds short, but never mind, we'll have a prayer meeting and reckon it to be there. <laughs> you ever seen an accountant act like that? Even a Christian one. They don't get on and say, right, we're 450 pounds short, I believe for 450 pounds, I believe for 450 pounds, is it there yet? No, well come on, try again. They don't work like that. What they do is they count what's really there. And then they reckon on the financial facts. Now that's what this word means, this reckoning. You have to know what's really there. And then you can count on the fact of it. And you can look at yourself and you say, right, I'm dead, Jesus is alive, I can reckon on that fact all day. It's a working of faith. It's a working of the operation of God. And there's such mighty power here. And having had our sins forgiven, having been justified, having been reconciled, now we're coming into this tremendous truth of living in the power of his resurrection. And the only condition is that I've got to be ready to hate the self-life as much as Jesus did. That's all. That's what it means to be united with him in his death. Every time you see a little bit of self-pity, God says, oh, oh look, there's self-pity. Oh, Lord, isn't it horrible? Let's stamp on it together. Boom. You see? Finish. Or, look, there's irritability. What does that mean? Well, it's another form of pride. Why are you irritable? Only because you didn't get your way or they didn't move quick enough. Irritability's got a root of pride. So, look, Lord says, look, look, there's pride. Yes, Lord, I see pride. Right, we'll stamp on it together. Boom. Finish. And so there's a working together with God against ourselves. And then suddenly all the circumstances of our day become not things to fight with, but they become things to rejoice in God with. I remember one instant, I'm going to close with this, when I was promoted to senior staff in uh, Kodak when I used to work in the research labs and I had a quite a nice office of my own and a lot of, number of people working for me and I had a big coating machine on, on standby waiting to do a whole series of experiments. And um, I, had, I couldn't find a single assistant to come and wheel the trolley down the corridor with these pots of emulsion from the, the, you know, the... It doesn't matter about all the technical details, but the point was there was this trolley to be wheeled to the coating machine and there was only me to do it. And I was senior staff and uh, in my office and there was no one around so the Lord said you do it I said Lord I couldn't do that I'm senior star <laughs> and I, I had a real battle about it I know it's silly but I had a real battle about this and so I sort of I sort of got the trolley and looked at it both ways and then every senior member of the branch he walked down that corridor I thought and I hello <laughs> and then by the time I'd got about a, a, a hundred feet I, I'd, I'd sort of gone through an awful dying I, I thought well I don't care I thought Lord I'm going to cooperate with you against myself and I began to sort of praise God that that awful awful pride was being dealt with by God it's horrible isn't it really and then the last two or three hundred feet it wasn't all that long I said hello nice to see you I'm, hello I was dead Something had died within me. 
just a little incident, but I still remember it to this day. I remember the embarrassment of having to, you know, be seen wheeling a trolley when I'm senior staff, you know. Ridiculous, isn't it? But they're the sort of things, hundreds of them a day possibly, just to deal with all these little roots of self. You know, couldn't imagine Jesus blushing, pushing a trolley, saying, well, I'm, senior, I'm the son of God, didn't you know? Ridiculous. All right, let's close at that then, shall we? Let's bow before God. Father. Oh, Father. This is so real. It's so actual and possible. We're not just filling up our notebooks with notes. We're not just simply tickling our ears with knowledge. But, Lord, these are the things of, of life and of your eternal kingdom. And we thank you that in the early church there was such grace upon them all that with great power they bore witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that we're going to need great grace. But we thank you that you've said that there is for us abundance of grace through faith we can lay hold of it by faith and each day we can get more firmly into this death that as a result the life of Jesus will increasingly be manifested in our mortal bodies not suddenly in heaven with a sort of a bing and there we are but right here on earth with kids and food and cars and gardens and people and all the, the warp and woof of everyday life. Here, right here, we can know the power of his resurrection. And Lord, we thank you that Jesus is alive. We thank you that it's proved for us the power that there is in God. That you could lift Jesus out of a terrible death into this glorious life. And so you can lift us out of this, this inheritance of sin and all the other things which pull us down. You can lift us by the same power into the same life. If we're united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly also be his resurrection. Hallelujah. How we praise you, Lord. Maybe get hold of it. Maybe not try and understand it so much as get into it, believe it, appropriate it. Let the truth drop into our hearts. Glory be to God. It's happened. I'm part of it. It's for me. Oh, hallelujah. And I'm going to go out for the rest of the day and I'm going to start tomorrow morning, another day, proving this to be true. Oh, praise your name. We thank you in Jesus' lovely name. Amen. Amen. Hmm.
Alright? You got it? Romans chapter 6, verse 12. Last week we were looking at the power of the resurrection and we saw and I attempted to convey something of the, of the terror and the wonder of the death which Jesus died. And then after that we, we saw the, the wonder of his resurrection, that when he came up out of death, he went into the very depths of death, and when he came up out of death, all the sting of death had completely left him and he was risen gloriously in the fullness of his resurrection life. Do you remember? Alright, so we go on to verse 12 now, because that's what the therefore is there for. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law but under grace. What then? Shall we sin? And the Greek here means even once. Shall we sin even once? Is it alright then to be a Christian who doesn't sin as much now as he used to before he was converted? That's the question we're asking here. Shall we sin even once because we're not under law but under grace? May it never be or God forbid. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death, or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I was to give a title to this uh, talk tonight, I would take the title, Choose Your Master. Choose Your Master. Because that's what we're being offered now. Up until we came to a baptism into the death of Christ, we had no choice. We were, by nature children of disobedience, we were under the power of the prince of the power of the air, we were just uh, tools in the hands of Satan, he could do what he liked with us. We were all prisoners. 
of sin. And if, as we go through this chapter, you will find that there are two slaveries offered to you, there are two freedoms offered to you, and there are two results of that choice. And you'll find these are the key words there. You'll find the word sin comes again and again. You'll find the word righteousness comes again and again. And you'll also find there the word obedience coming many, many times. There are some of the key words in this passage of Scripture. And if we can get hold of this, what's going to happen is that instead of having a theology of victory over sin, we shall find an understanding of these verses brings us into the practice of it. Now we're coming to the practical application of what Jesus obtained for us in his death and resurrection. Now before we can enter into it, we've got to know about it. That's why we saw in the first 11 verses of Romans 6, there came three no's. We have to know that it's personal, that's verse 3, as many as have been baptised into Christ Jesus have been baptised into his death. What does baptism into Christ Jesus mean? It means that there comes a day when you say, Lord, I want to be immersed into you. I want to come under your rule, government and authority. I want to lose my individualism. I don't want to be myself doing my own thing anymore. I want to come under your rule and government and I'm baptised into Christ. I'm immersed into him and into his death. And because I become part of him in all that he did, I receive all the benefits of, of what he did. Now, I can't go over the world again. I trust that's clear to us. We've got to know it's personal. You've got to know that's me. That when I was baptised into Christ, I was baptised into his death. It's good to write your name there. Don't you know that so-and-so, write your name, was baptised into Christ Jesus and he was baptised into his death. Do you know that? Don't try and feel it. Don't try and understand it. Know it. And the knowing comes from knowing that God knows what he's talking about. You'll find a progression in John's writings, which I've often mentioned to you. In John's Gospel, he talks so much about believing. These things are written that you might believe. And when he writes his first letter, he's moved forward to a position of knowing. He says, these things are written to those that believe that you might know that you have eternal life. And you might know the quality and dimensions and wonders of this eternal life. It's the same life which Jesus had. It's the same life which he manifested when he was on earth and that's the life which God has given us through the new birth. There's no difference in quality at all. Amen. We've got to know that. And, and John gets so confident that he even talks in his first letter of knowing that he knows. <laughs> I know me know, I once remember a Yorkshireman saying, I know me know. <laughs> and we've got to know that we know. It's got to become so certain that it's me that God has included when he said, you have been baptised into Christ's death. Verse 6, you've got to know that your old man was crucified with Christ. That is that old nature, that old you that you hate and God hates, that nasty self that you've had problems with all your life and God finds utterly disgusting and as you are uh, made alive in the spirit, you find it equally disgusting and God says, right, don't worry son, I've crucified it with Christ. It's finished. And here's a new you who's born after the line and lineage of Jesus. You've got a new hereditary in Christ. And nothing that, that, that can stalk you from your past. The fact that your grandmother was a spiritist medium 
and that, that Aunt Mary used to read the teacup leaves and all these things which could haunt you in your former life, now they're cut off in the cross in Christ Jesus. All that you've inherited, all that's been laid upon you in your early years because perhaps you had a terrible upbringing, your father didn't treat you right and your mother filled you with fears and you went through awful experiences in that boarding school, whatever it was that shaped you into you, that's also been put to death in Christ. It's part of the old man. And then finally, whatever you did in your own stupidity, and you mustn't blame the devil for what you did. That's a common mistake. Oh, I'm, I'm what I'm because... You know, it was because of what you did. I certainly filled my mind with filth. I opened myself to uncleanness. It was nothing that I inherited. And it wasn't something my parents shaped me into. It was my own foolishness in my teenage years which gave me an unclean mind. It was my fault. But nevertheless, in Christ, it was cut off. Hallelujah. And then thirdly, in verse 9, you've got to know that it's past. It's personal. I'm sorry, in verse 6, it's past. And verse 9, it's permanent. That's the other word. It's happened once for all. How many times did Jesus die to sin? Once. You don't die to sin every church holiday. And then by Monday week, you're back in it again. <laughs> No, no, it's not like that. It's once for all. Jesus died to sin once. And in that he lives, he lives to God. He says, now so reckon yourselves dead indeed to sin and alive to God. Now that's the preliminaries to this passage which we're now looking at. Therefore, because of this, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Let's have a, if I had a, a blackboard or a, one of these overhead projectors, I'd like to put some diagrams on the board. But if you can just imagine in your mind, I want you to get a picture here and at the top I'd draw a crown and I'd, and I'd write across the top King Sin. See, there's two rulers which Romans 5 and 6 talk about. The first ruler is King Sin. Let not sin reign, it says, in your mortal body. So there's King Sin, like a, like a great powerful uh, ruler and let's imagine that he's got a, a, a little state and he's got control of that state because he's put in charge a kind of vassal king a puppet king who's doing what he wants. And so while that puppet king is in charge of that state, the great king of the empire can make the people of that state do exactly what he wants. Have you got the picture? Well, that's how we were when we, how we were in our natural selves. There's King Sin. And in chapter 6 of Romans, sin becomes almost personified. Because the old man is dead, don't make the mistake of thinking that sin is dead. Sin is not dead. Sin is a force and a power in the world which Jesus certainly had to contend with. Although he never had an old man. He certainly, we're told in Hebrews 12, he strived against sin to the sweating of blood. And we're exhorted to have the same attitude to sin. Sin's always like a person, a great mighty force that's seeking to bring you into captivity. And the picture we have here is, is King Sin ruling... The old man is like the vassal king who just has to do what he's told and the members of our body are like citizens of this vassal kingdom. They have to do exactly what they're told. King Sin can run the whole thing his way while the old man is on the throne. Alright? But a day comes when that old man is put to death. Well, imagine that there's a coup and he's killed and all the people jump around in the streets and say, we're free, we're free! But there's a great big terrifying emperor who's coming with a mighty army to come and take back his possession. 
So what do they do? They look for another mighty ruler who's even stronger than the king's sin. And they say, we'll put ourselves under your authority instead. And immediately they do that. They're safe. You see, what we've got to understand is this, that we can never, ever live a life of self-existent freedom. It's impossible. Mankind, by nature, is a dependent being. Someone must rule over us. And as we were born naturally into the world, and as we were uh, just ordinary citizens of this world, we were living like everybody else in the world. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us we were all, at one time, children of the devil. We were under the rule of Satan. King Sin ruled over us, and through the old man, we find, find ourselves doing things which we really can't help ourselves. At school, we're pressurised to do what everybody else is doing. At work, we're pushed along by the way everybody else is going. We're not strong enough, even if we want to be different, want to be better. How many times do people in the world say, oh, I'm sure there's more to life than this, and yet we're still carried along in the same way, unable to resist the tide of the power of the prince of the air, which is really the way of the world. We're just prisoners of sin. And we can want to be different, but we have no power at all to change. And that's how we all once were. Now what the cross did, when we came to Christ and said, Lord, I believe in you, our tongues are want to be used for. Or, to come to the mind with its unclean thinking, Again, I think unbelief is a great thing in the mind. That's where so many of our problems start. We will not think the way God's Word commands us to think. We just don't do it. And we say, oh no, that can't happen to me. I, I, I can't really believe God's forgiven me. Well, that's unbelief. And you go on thinking, and God says, that's, that's a lie. Even tonight, some of you say, well, I don't feel forgiven. Well, who cares what you feel? Rachel brought it up beautifully in her prayer, almost a prophetic word there. Did you get hold of it? doesn't matter what you feel. doesn't matter what you, you, you know or say. It's what God has said that's important. And so we've got to look at these members and say, right, members, you are no longer going to be presented as instruments of sin. Now, this is something that you decide about. See, there's a responsibility here, which I think some of us have failed to see. We've been sitting in meetings and conferences and listening to tapes and waiting for God to sort of go boom, you know, and like sort of Cinderella, we say, oh look, I'm all changed, you know, by a sort of magical hand of God. Notice that when God brought Peter out of prison, he didn't go boom to Peter and Peter said, oh look how lovely. God said, put your clothes on. Ever notice that? He said, put your clothes on, bind on your sandals, put on your cloak, walk. He had to do all that himself. God provided the supernatural, but Peter had to be moving in faith or he'd still be in prison to this day. That's right, isn't it? And that's, that's our part. We've got to get up and start moving in the revelation of God. So don't wait for a sort of boom experience and think, oh, now at last I can start to live victoriously. You can start living victoriously tonight. You can say, right, members, you're no longer going to serve sin. You're not going to talk negatively, you're not going to talk criticism, you're not going to talk doubt and fear and unbelief. You're going to start confessing the truth of God. You're going to start speaking love and all the other things. Amen. For it says in verse 14, Sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but you're under grace. 
Now, let's just dwell on this and get this clear. The two things we can be under. Law means that what we've basically done is to break Christianity down to a series of standards we're aiming for, or rules we try and keep. Someone said to me, what what, what are the rules? What's the constitution of your church? I said, well, just do everything God says. It's easy, isn't it? Whatever he says unto you, do it. You see, in our minds, we're always trying to break it down to a set of things we do or do not do. And we set up a set of laws, which may be good. Moses' law was good. Nothing wrong with it. But it became a set of rules. And then in our own strength, we try and keep it. Now, as long as we do that, we shall remain in bondage to sin. Sin shall not have dominion over you because you're not under law. Well, what are you under? You're under grace. What does that mean? It does not mean it doesn't matter what you do, which is a perversion of the understanding of grace. Grace is an alternative power which is so infinitely much greater. It's like me sort of saying to you, right, I want you to get from London to Bombay in two weeks and here's a bicycle. (laughs) Duncan might do it. (laughs) I can't think of anybody else who would even want to try. But if I say, well, look, uh, God wants you in Bombay and here's a jumbo jet, just get in and relax, boy. In nine hours you'd be there. And you wouldn't have sweated an inch of the way. You would have been borne along by a superpower. Or we might say, well, look, who wants to stay in Bombay? Let's go on to New York, you see, because in the power of grace, the, the possibilities are so much, much greater. Now, grace is not an alternative. God's, you see, we get so mixed up with grace and mercy, as I've often said. We think the Christian life is, is, well, it doesn't matter if you fail. Whereas when you're under law, fail once, boom, you've had it. And grace is a sort of an alternative where we go on sinning and falling around in, in failure, but God's like a big white Father Christmas figure. that says, never mind, son, just go back and have another week of failure. It doesn't matter. And that is not grace. Grace is divine power, is to enable us to fly in the spirit, to rise up above all those pressures and circumstances which before used to destroy us even when we were trying our best. While you're under law, you'll fail because if you're under law, you must of necessity be seeking to do it in your own strength. But the moment we grasp the abundance of grace which God lavishes upon us, how? What's the one thing required for the abundance of grace? Good, good, well done. Romans 5.17, it's faith. That's the thing. We say, Lord, I believe that it's Monday morning, there's two, three loads of washing, the kids are, cr- are all in, I, I can't, I, Lord, I believe, I believe, I believe, I can, and come through the day with victory. And say, Lord, I believe in you for the abundance of grace to do it. Now that's, that's divine power, granting to you all the things necessary for living. That's what Peter said, for living. And godliness. See how practical it all is. We're not under law, we're under grace. We're not any longer trying to sort of find a standard which we perhaps with a bit of effort can reach to and then trying to reach it. That's all gone. We're now presented with Jesus Christ as our goal. To live and to think and to walk the way he lived, thought and walked. And there's a mighty power released in the cross to carry us there. Praise God. Now it's a process. And this is where I fell down because I would get up and try and I'd fall and say, oh, it doesn't work. Have you ever said that? 
But it isn't that at all. It's a process where we get hold of this divine seed and we let it be planted deep in our heart and we don't dig it up until the fruit comes. <laughs> that's what we do. You know, we say, oh, that, that's a, that was a tremendous word that, that Dave ministered this morning. You see, and it's gone into our hearts, but next, tomorrow morning we'll be digging up and saying, let's see whether there's anything coming up. Oh, no, it hasn't, nothing started yet. It was a dead seed, but it wasn't. It wasn't. We didn't give it time to germinate and come forth in its fullness. There's a process, but there's a beginning. So there is a crisis. Do you understand me? There has to be a day when that seed goes into your heart as a living word, as an implanted word, and germination begins. And eventually you're going to see the harvest. That's why you've got to hold on. Now, we're not under law. We're under grace. Therefore, sin shall not reign over you. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? Otherwise you better tear your Bible up. And I don't care how irritable you are or how unclean you are or how defeated, how lazy you are. Whatever's wrong, since you'll not have dominion over you, get hold of it. Let it be an implanted word in you tonight and then believe God for the harvest. Alright? Verse 15, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law? Or as I mentioned in the reading, it's the aorist tense, shall we not sin even once? Because, you know, in other words, is Christianity an improvement in our tendency to sin, but not a complete victory? And the answer is no. God forbid, says Paul. In verse 1 of Romans 6, it's dealing with the continual practice of sinning sinning all over the place. God forbid, don't you know you're, you're dead? But now we're coming to a sort of, well, you can't expect to be victorious all the time, can you? Yes, you can. Shall we sin even once? And the answer is that we shall not sin any more than Jesus sinned when we have the same obedience in our life that he had in his. Now that's the key. We immediately now come on to obedience. We're not here to live you know, lives of our own, oh, I think I'll go here and I'll do that, and we're still basically self-governing, we just make up our own mind to do what we like and come rushing to the fellowship when we feel a bit down. No, you can't live like that, you've got to live every minute under the obedience of God. That's how Jesus lived, and that's why he could live his whole life without sin. It wasn't because he was God, although he was God. It was because as a true man, he lived by the power and by the resources which have become available to us through the cross. That is, the ability to receive abundance of grace through a continual obedience to his Father's will. That's why as we move on now, you'll find the word obedience coming as a key word. Let's read on. Verse 16. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. You can choose now who you're going to obey. 
You're going to obey sin? Sin will come along and say, come on dear, it's been a bit boring. The last two meetings were a bit flat. Why don't you just sort of, let's go out and do something different this week. Or, or just in a lovely tempting way, he'll say, come on, let's do our own thing. And once we do that, sin finds its opportunity and down we go. Jesus said, he that commits sin is the slave of sin. And this is saying the same thing. You, and notice, I don't like the word in the King James which which talks about yielding your members as if if there is sort of sin coming in and saying, I've got you, and you say, oh, oh, I can't stop him getting hold of me. You see, that's not true. The word here is of presenting yourselves. There's There's a point where you can choose to whom you are going to give yourselves. And we can decide, I'm going to yield myself as an instrument of irritability. And I know I shouldn't be doing it, but I'm doing it. I think, well, I, I'm going I'm to enjoy a bit of bad temper this morning. I, that's one of my weaknesses. <laughs> I just feel out of sorts and everybody's going to feel it. But I don't have to do it, not really. Although I can kid myself that my grandfather and my father would like it, so I can't help it. But it's not true, not really, not deep down. Although it's become a deep, deep habit. And this is where we differ from Jesus, because he never allowed habits to develop in his life. He never allowed sin to go on uh, training his members, you see, and we've done that in the past. If I can use an illustration, imagine there's some factory that had a rotten uh, factory manager and, and there was no discipline and the workers came in any old how and they set the machines any old how, turned out rubbishy goods and the salesman just went out and flogged this stuff by, you know, cleverness and the whole thing was an absolute shambles. And then one day, they sacked the general manager and put a new man in. Now, right at the centre of management, a new force has been established. But it takes a while to work its way out to the extremities of the company. It may mean refitting the whole factory with new equipment and the whole staff have got to be retrained out of their old sloppy ways of doing it. The whole sales force has got to be retrained to present the truth. And so there's a whole process. But the moment that mighty new manager is placed in the centre of the thing, the final results are certainty. It's just a matter of time as it works its way out. Now that's, that's our condition. Our condition is not that we are schizophrenic. We're not two people. We're not Jekyll and Hyde. You know, one minute I'm all lovely in the meeting, the next minute I'm all, you know, like the devil himself, you know, ah! It's not that, we're not Jekyll and Hyde. We haven't got an old nature and a new nature fighting like a black and white dog inside us. That's just not true. Our condition is spastic. We've got a new inner being. We've been created anew from within and there's a process being worked out till it touches the very extremities of our life. Till all our members are brought under the continuous total rule of the living Christ. Now that's a process. But there's a Christ, the crisis is the moment the manager takes over. And the, the degree to which we cooperate is the, uh, affects the speed in which the transformation takes place. Do you understand that? And so we can choose. We can say, right, we're going to have a new manager. <laughs> and these members are all, from now on, they're going to yield themselves as instruments of righteousness, as slaves. We're going to do exactly what God wants. Let's read on. Verse 17. Verse 16 is the choice. Who are you going to obey? 
Verse 17, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. So here's the key to it. The key to it is we become obedient from the heart to the teaching that we've received. And how much teaching we've had, haven't we? And how God is so patient to say it again and again and again and again. And we really, if you think about it, we're always going around the same things. Because we're not in it. We're not in it. But if we obey that from the heart, that form of teaching to which we were committed, we're committed, and I'm going to obey this, right, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure my tongue serves God. That's a good start, isn't it? And every time it doesn't, you get up again and say, right, okay, that was the slip, you're going to do it. See, this is where we must not fall down because there's a momentary slip. We don't give up the idea. Having been freed from sin as a result of obeying the teaching from the heart to which we were committed, having become freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. You become prisoners of righteousness. Do you want to be a prisoner of righteousness? Do you? That's what you've got to decide. Do I want no longer to have my own will and to do my own thing? Even just twice a week will be enough to destroy any possibility of you being a slave of righteousness. It's a continuous obedience to God. You can't do it when you like, how you like. It has to be complete. You've got to choose whom you're going to obey, one or the other. Now I'm speaking, he says, in human terms, because of the weakness of your flesh. Have you often thought, well, how do we get into this victory life? How do we walk in the Spirit? And I thought, oh, there must be a very spiritual answer to this. And I've pondered and read and thought. And the answer's absurdly simple. And the answer's here in verse 19. Here it is. Just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness. Well, what does it mean? Well, you started, for example, if you have a problem with lying, how did you start lying? The day came when you told a lie. Then you told another one. And then you told another one. And you got a better and better liar. And the more you lied, the more you learned how to lie. So it was a process which led you into expertise in lying. It wasn't just one act which forever made you a perfect liar. It wasn't one act which brought you into bondage to lying. It was continually yielding yourself with increasing commitment to the whole process of lying. And if you think about anything to which you're in bondage, it could be self-pity. How did you become in bondage to self-pity? You started to give in to thoughts of, oh, poor little me. God or people or whatever, they hadn't treated me the same as they treat others and it was just a thought and you gave place to the thought and then it became bigger and it was like a sort of a, a, a whole infestation of weeds which gradually took over the whole of your garden until it choked the life out of everything good that was growing there. It was a process. And as you gave yourself, as you gave in to this, it says here, as you gave in to sin and to lawlessness, it produced further increase in lawlessness. It was a process and it's been going on in some of our lives for, for decades. And what we have to do now is reverse that process and say, right, from now on, we're changing gear. <laughs> if I was going in reverse, I'm now going forward. There's going to be a turnaround in my attitude to these things. Now that's a decision. You can be going 
along a road towards, say, you're going along the M1 towards uh, Leeds and you can decide, no, I'm going to go to London instead. Well, then you turn around at the next exit. Christ. It doesn't matter how deep the habit is. It doesn't matter how long we've thought wrong and acted wrong. It doesn't matter how long our members have been instruments of sin. As we hand them over to God, God can make them into instruments of righteousness. Now, you've got to decide that tonight. Whose master you're going to... Whose slave you're going to be? You're going to choose your master. And having chosen, that's got to be now worked out by a daily continuing in that choice. It's not a momentary sort of crisis and boom, but it's a, it's a turning round and a steadily walking on in this way. And as we walk on in it, we'll find increasingly this glorious freedom becomes our experience. Let's just pray for a moment, shall we? Not you, you are. Romans chapter 7 and verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead, that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. For I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. And I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, Sin became alive and I died. 
And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which was good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin, in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good, that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For that which I am doing, I do, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not wish to do, I agree with the law, confessing that it is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which indwells me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh. For the wishing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I wish I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not wish, if I am no longer the one doing it, I'm sorry, but if I'm doing the very thing I do not wish, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wishes to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind, am serving the law of God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. I hope you understood all that. <laughs> and I think it was Martin Lloyd-Jones who took about four and a half years to uh, go through this one chapter. So in one night, we're obviously only going to touch on a few things. But just remember where we have been over the last few weeks because I believe probably Romans 7 is the chapter which most earnest Christians can identify with. The good that I want to do, I don't do. And the evil that I don't want to do, that I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. Now, amen? Now, and I want us just to look at this and begin to understand why it is and where we go from here. Now, up to now, we've looked at a few things. I just want to remind you very quickly, because we have basically three enemies that we have to understand. If The whole purpose of this thrust now is that we might come through to victorious living, to really live in the power of his resurrection. And we've, we find three enemies which are very, very similar to one another. And there are three remedies prescribed for these three enemies. And it's good for us to get them clear. Although they are, they, they are interrelated, they sort of blur one into the other. And the three enemies are the old man, sin, 
And now as we come into Romans 7, the flesh. Now they're not the same, although obviously they, they are very, very closely related one to the other. The old man is that union uh, of my inheritance through my ancestors, the shaping of my circumstances, and the wrong things that I did myself before I came to Jesus Christ. That makes up the old man. They're the three strands. It's that horrible, nasty old self which God hates and which through the new birth we've come to hate as well. Right? You look at it and say, ugh, that's horrible. Now we've got good news and that is we're told clearly in Romans 6, the first part, that that old man has been crucified with Christ. So the remedy for the old man is the cross. Once for all and it has happened. And that frees us from the bondage of what we've inherited, what our circumstances made us, and what we in our ignorance did. God's freed us from all this in one mighty stroke of the cross. And we're not in bondage to this anymore. Praise God. But we then discover that there's a principle uh, called sin. It's almost personified in these chapters. And it's the, it's the if you like, it's the distilled manifestation of the evil of Satan. It's so related to Satan that it's almost like Satan in person. And it's there stalking us, longing to bring us into bondage. And Jesus had this experience of being pressed and pressed and pressed by sin, although he never had an old man. But we read in Hebrews 12 that he resisted unto blood, striving against sin. And although he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet he never sinned. He was without sin. And we saw in the end of Romans 6 that the, that the key to being free from sin is that we presented our members to another master. The power of the cross releases us to choose our master. But it's impossible for us to live in victorious independence. We've just got a choice of masters. Before the old man was crucified with Christ, we had no choice. We were slaves of sin by nature. And then the cross came, it released us into the freedom which Jesus knew, which was he could choose who his master was going to be. Speaking, of course, in human terms, during his earthly life and ministry. And he chose to be utterly subject to the rule of the Father. God the Father had complete control of every minute of every day and he had one desire one deep burning desire which was to do the will of him who sent him it was more important to him than food and that's why sin could never touch him it was obedience it was yielding it was presenting his members it was consciously giving to, to father his tongue and his mind and his ears and his hands and his feet, consciously giving to Father every single member, saying, Lord, they're yours to use exclusively throughout this day. That's what caused Jesus never to be molested or never to be overcome by sin. So we see then that the answer to sin is obedience. And there's no way anybody's going to live victoriously in Christ while we are choosing disobedience. We know perfectly well when God says don't do that or don't go there but we say well I'm going to. Don't listen to that but we do. Don't say that but we do. There's, there's a, a, a 
a tendency to disobedience and once we yield our members to disobedience we become slaves of sin immediately we have to come out from under sin repent be cleansed and submit again to the mastery of Jesus Christ now most Christians sort of tend to oscillate here but God uh, in verse 15 of Romans 6 says what shall we sin even once that grace may abound and the answer is God forbid there's no need even to sin once if we have a, a grasped this message with sufficient depth. Now, in Romans 7, we come, I think, to the chapter which is for earnest believers who really want to live in obedience to God. If that's not your hard attitude, then you might as well go to sleep now because it isn't relevant. Romans 7 is for the earnest Christians who've heard Romans. He says, yeah, that's what I want. I want, to, I want to live like Jesus. I want to obey the Father like Jesus did. I want to live every minute to the glory of God. I want my lips, my hands, my mind, every part of me to be a member which is presented to God for righteousness. And from now on, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I dedicate myself, Lord, to be yours and yours alone. Now, that's just where the danger is. And that's where we run into trouble. And that's why Romans 7 is written. Because it's so easy to present ourselves to God in dedicated self-effort. And that's where we f absolutely fall flat on our faces. And I suppose uh, the most common experience of sincere, dedicated Christians is the experience of disappointment. disappointment. I've tried, Lord, and it doesn't work. I've tried so hard, Lord, and I've still not got the victory in these areas. Is that what you've been saying? Well, Romans 7 is written. Uh, it's a sort of an identification with that attitude. Paul knows all about it. Interesting, isn't it? And yet, we praise God that when we've been through Romans 7, and even the hints are there in Romans 7, we now move on into Romans 8. Because until we've, we've deeply tasted Romans 7, I don't think we're ready for the kind of life which Romans 8 prescribes. We have to learn through bitter experience, as Paul puts it in verse 18 of Romans 7, for I know, or I prefer here the King James, which is a bit stronger, for I am fully persuaded, I'm completely convinced, that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. Now, are you convinced about that? Oh, good. Is someone convinced? Well, then, you're ready for Romans 8, then, brother. But don't be too sure that you're convinced. Because <laughs> the Lord will take us through experience after experience until we really discover just how utterly, utterly useless it is to struggle in our own strength. So let's quickly run through Romans 7. We won't have time obviously to pick up more than a few points, the first few verses take the analogy of marriage. And it speaks of a woman who's married to a husband, and because she's married to that husband, she's bound by law to that husband, and then the husband dies, she's then free to marry another. But she cannot be married to both husbands at once. One must die in order that the marriage to the second is legal. That's the point of those verses. So who are we talking about here? Well, you'll find as we go through Romans 7 that law is spoken about in three ways. We've got to understand how it's used differently as we go through the chapter. 
Number one is law in the sense of uh, a principle of law. Like somebody may say, I believe in law and order. And what they mean is, I believe that it's right for a government to set out a lot of rules and regulations and for people to be made to keep those rules and regulations. That's the only way, they'll say, to run society. Not everybody would agree with them, but that's how some people look and, and believe. I believe in the principle of rules and regulations and of being required to keep them. That's the way the word law is used with a capital L. All right? The second way it's used is about the rules themselves. The specifics, like uh, having believed in law and order as a principle, the government may pass a law to say that uh, you cannot ride bicycles at more than 30 miles an hour. <laughs> now, that becomes a specific law. It becomes a specific rule. And that's another way it's used. In other words, once you've accepted the principle of law, you've got to be obedient to all the specifics of law. You can't say, I believe in law and order, that is, nobody should come into my house and steal. But when you find a yellow parking line, you think, oh, well, I'm, not, I'm going to ignore that, you see, because that's a contradiction. You either fulfill the law in totality, because the Bible says if you break the law in one point, you're guilty of everything. Now, I know that's in reference to Moses' law, but the principle still applies. That is, if you believe in being married to the law, then you've got to keep all the rules of that law. Now, the husband here is law in the sense of the big L. And that's where many, many Christians actually find themselves living. They're not living in a living relationship to God at all, but they've broken the Christian life down to a series of rules. They may be the rules that they've decided are convenient, they may be the rules of the group to which they belong. Or maybe they've extracted from the Bible what they think God requires of them and they've broken it down into a, a series of things which they do, a series of things which they do not, and then they try ever so hard to keep all those rules and regulations. Well, if you're living like that, you're living under law. You are married to the law. Now, you may say, right, and they may, you see, the Moses law was good and holy and, and it, was, it was ever so good, but it has one tremendous weakness and that is we're left to obey it in our own strength and that's why it doesn't work. And if you decide to live by law, it says, all right, God says, all right, then you get on with it. He'll leave you to discover that you can no more keep the law, whatever law it is, than the Jews could keep the law of Moses, which was God-given. You may say, right, I feel really blessed on Sunday, so Monday morning, up at 6.30, half an hour's prayer and Bible study, then when I see the wife, I'm going to say, hello darling, and take her a cup of tea in bed. When she's recovered from her faint, <laughs> I will uh, pray for her to be healed. <laughs> I'm going to be nice to the children, and then I'm going to go off to work, I'm going to drive at exactly 30 miles an hour, and uh, so on, and you, you make out for yourself a picture of the ideal day and you set yourself to keep it. By 9.30 you're in ruins. <laughs> or maybe if you're lucky you manage it for two days and then gradually one thing after another begins to go wrong. You think, it's no use, I'm no different. But of course you're not. God knows that, you never will be. 
And this, basically, is what Paul is speaking about when he talks about having a husband and being married to that husband, you're bound by the rules as long as you remain married to that husband. If you are living your Christian life by the principle of a set of rules which you try and keep, however good they are, then you are a person who's seeking to live an adulterous life because you're married to the law on the one hand and at the same time you're trying to walk with Jesus and you can't do both. It's impossible. And if you choose, consciously or unconsciously, to live a life of rules and regulations and trying to keep them, then the Lord says, righto, you get on with it. You can only have one husband. If you've chosen the law, hard luck. (laughs) And what we've got to see is that in the cross, in the body of Christ, we have died to the law. Now, another way of looking at this is to put in place of law, because the two things are so bound together, they're like one husband. To put in place of law is the word flesh. Now, the word flesh, uh, I think the best definition of of flesh is that union of body and soul that acts independently of God. Now, the flesh isn't necessarily wicked, it's just weak. Another way of describing... Is that someone going down the back? Another way of describing the flesh is simply to put it in the words self. Self. Now, self can be wicked, but... When you go religious, self can become religious. And when we've come to the end of Romans, we say, right, I'm going to try. Then you see, self has now become a, 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 a trying to keep God's standard by my own effort kind of thing. Now, the, you see, sin and the flesh, they're not the same. Sin is wicked. And sin says, I'm a rebel. I hate the things of God. The flesh says, I'm weak (laughs) and I'm trying to please God. But still, it can't do it. The sin is, is intrinsically set against God. The flesh is struggling and trying to do that which it's decided by a set of rules it would like to live up to. Now that's what we're looking at here in Romans 7. We hear this message, oh, come on, let's obey God. Yeah, I'm going to obey God. Right. And you set yourself with the effort to do it. All right? Well, somebody's understood that's marvellous, isn't it? (laughs) Now, listen to the words of Scripture. Let's go to Romans 7. So then, verse 3, or let's go to verse 2, for the married woman is bound by, and I'll put these words in now, is bound by the regulations to her husband, the law, while he is living. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law concerning 
the husband. She's released from the rules. And when Christ died, and you died in Christ, you were finished with law. Do you understand that? And you're no longer required to keep the law. Now you say, oh, but that means I could go out and do anything. No, you can't. Because you're not left in gay widowhood. (laughs) The death of your former husband doesn't take place until the same instant as your marriage to your second husband. That's why you're not free to go off and say, oh, and some people make this perversion of the truth and and it was true in Paul's day because he says, we don't go around teaching live as you like, it doesn't matter. No, he says, See what it says in the next verse. So then, while her husband's living, verse 3, she, if she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she's free from the law, so that she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So what God does is, he releases you from the law in order that you may be married to Christ. But there's no gay widow, Christ, better to say, right, well, I've got to clean myself up a bit. I've got to to put away the worst things. I've got to come not to a set of rules and trying to keep them, hoping that this will give me acceptance with God, because that's not the way at all. It doesn't work that way. I've got to come to Jesus, just as I am. And the amazing is that he receives me. We're joined together in a spiritual union. And in the relationship of that, that joining together, there's a conception which brings forth fruit. And the fruit is righteousness unto God. Alright? Now, in the next section, which we'll look at quickly, we're told why the law was given. And the law was given to show us, basically, that we will never, ever, ever be able to live an acceptable life to God in our own strength. The law discovers for us the sinfulness of sin. The law says you shan't cover Now, there's only one thing wrong with the flesh. It's utterly weak. And if the law says, right, okay, well, you you won't covet. Then sin says, ah, so you've made a law, have you? We'll see about that. And once, once sin sees a law, sin's got opportunity through the law. It only took one commandment to bring Adam and Eve down, which was, don't eat of the fruit of that tree. Before there was a commandment, there was no opportunity for sin because there was no possibility of disobedience. But once you make a rule, once you come under any kind of law and you decide, right, I'm going to live according to that law, sin says, right, now I've got you. (laughs) Because you're left in the weakness of your own strength to keep that rule. And once you start to live in the weakness of your own strength, sin says, well, it's easy meat. I can See, sin can overcome the weakness of our flesh any time. We never, ever get stronger. You can be a Christian for 40 years and you're just as weak at the end as you were at the beginning. There's no increase in strength to stand in our own strength against sin. None at all. God just doesn't work that way and he won't allow us if you like, to have victory over sin in our own strength. And so sin comes and finds opportunity through the law. And and sin starts to say, oh look, he's got a nice car, why don't you have one like that? And look, look, you went to their house last night, look at that nice furniture. 
And you say, and, and, and you, once, the, once the law, once the law comes, I shall not covet, you find yourself all the time, you're coveting, whereas before you never thought about these things. But sin's now working away at this particular principle. And he's saying, and in the end you, you find yourself broken down by the battering of sin in that area until you give in. And then he says, ah, you've sinned. Now God's finished with you. And then immediately you're in defeat. So make a rule anywhere you like. Decide, if you like, I'm going to go every morning and have a quiet time. Go on, I dare you. And see what happens. Now you might keep it up for a week. I've gotten into awful condemnation over this. I once heard some brother preaching and he said, this is my rule, he said, no Bible, no breakfast. I thought, well, that's a good rule. That'll make me read my Bible every morning. And, and I, I, I once or twice went without breakfast and then one morning I slunk down and I thought, well... It's too late to read my Bible, but I'm going to eat something. And I, and I ate it, and I felt terrible all day. I thought, oh, oh you know, what a sinner I am. What a wicked sinner. Now, to have a morning quiet time is, is a wonderful thing, and it's essential for spiritual health. But to, to come under the law that you are acceptable to God by obeying this law, that's dangerous. Do you understand what I'm saying? You make it a law... That's where sin will stay. I'm not saying, oh, stay in bed and don't worry about a quiet time. I'm not saying that. But you be joined to Christ and he'll boot you out of bed. <laughs> in love. <laughs> but if you've been up till three in the morning and you just sleep through, you say, Lord, I just can't do it this morning. He says, all right, son, doesn't matter. And you don't feel condemned. See, there's a flexibility in walking with Christ that is not in the law. The law's written on stone. It's impersonal. It's the same for everybody. It doesn't take into consideration the circumstances. Whereas when you're walking in Christ, he's adjusting all the time according to you, your situation, and the pressures that are upon your life. And so he's able to just take you at the pace that you can go. He's all the time stretching you, all the time developing you, but it's just right for you. And, that's th and it's changing all the time. It's constantly being adjusted to develop you and develop you and develop you in God. And what you got away with a year ago, he won't get away with now. Hallelujah. Now that's the difference. And it's, so the law was given by God just to show these religious Jews, and it's amazing when you read Exodus 19, when they hear all these, and they say, everything the Lord said we will do, they say. You know, hadn't even heard the detail. They thought, well, we can do it. Just a few rules and regulations. We can manage it. He said they had no idea how weak and hopeless they were in themselves. And then the incredible thing is when you come to the book of Joshua, having had 40 years of disobedience, they say, just as they obeyed Moses, we're going to obey you. <laughs> and they're quite unaware. I could hear God sort of going, oh no, not again. <laughs> Haven't you learnt yet? What have you learned? That there's only one way to live and that's in a constant, moment by moment, living relationship with Christ where he speaks and you do what he says. That's the only way that, that you can live. And he supplies the power, the grace to do what he says. Alright? Now, so, Paul found that when the law came, he died. You see, there was a period in Paul's life when he wasn't under law because Jewish boys weren't required to keep the law until they went through a special ceremony at the age of 12 or 13 when they were brought before 
the uh, synagogue and they, they went through a ceremony of a bar mitzvah. They were married to the law. They became sons of the law. And up to that age, they weren't expected to keep the law. So they could go along with Dad to the synagogue and they could hear the scriptures and, and hear the psalms sung and they could enjoy if you like, all the blessings of the Jewish religion, but they themselves were not required to keep the law. They couldn't fall into sin according to the law because they weren't under the law. And that's what Paul's saying in the next few verses. He says, there was a time when I, when I was alive apart from the law. I used to go along to the synagogue with my daddy and I used to enjoy it. Watched that old man in the front with the white beard and I could, I could sort of laugh at him, but I wasn't condemned because I was only a lad and I wasn't expected to keep the law. I had a relationship with God and, and so on. And then came this wonderful day when I came to the place where I was going to be married to the law. I was going to become a bar mitzvah, a son of the law. And, he's, and I can just imagine Paul, because he was such a zealous young man, and he probably thought, right, now, if ever there was anybody that's going to keep the law, it's going to be me. And when he went through his preparation classes, he probably made tremendous notes and got it all down and thought, right, that's what I, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that, I'm going to do that. And there was, in this young lad, all the zeal of someone who wholly wanted to serve God. And he went through the ceremony, and that's when disaster struck, because he found that now he was subject to the law. Now he'd got all the detail of what was required of him, he couldn't keep it. And that which was supposed to be life came, became death. There was a time when Daddy would say, come on, we're going to the synagogue. I said, oh, I'd love to go. But now he, was, he said, no, Dad, I want to go. I, I, I don't feel like going. And suddenly the idea of going was, was off because there was all, he was all condemned. Because he knew that all that desire to keep the law had not enabled him to do it. And now that very good, holy commandment had brought death, not life to him. And as a result, the fellowship he had with God disappeared. He said, I died. Not physically, but that relationship he had with God in his innocence was destroyed by the coming in of the law which brought him into guilt and condemnation. That's what often happens to Christians. You come in and you say, oh, I'm saved, I'm saved. And then suddenly you start to discover what God requires of you. And you feel worse and worse. And you think, oh, I, I don't, I don't know, I'll go, you go to the meeting this dear love and I'll look after the children. And you think, What's, that's funny, what's the matter with him? Well, you're, you're beginning to experience what Paul experienced. That is, you're beginning to feel the condemnation of someone who's beginning to discover what's required of him and you're making the mistake of coming under law and trying to keep the law. Now, Paul speaks of this in verses 7 to 14 in Romans 7 and notice it's all in the past tense.
He says, I was alive apart from the law. Verse 9. But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And he discovered just how much sin there was working in his life. And that his own trying not to fulfill, uh, and not, not to give in to this sin, was, just wasn't good enough and he couldn't resist it. And I died. And this commandment which was to result in life proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Do you understand that? I'm having to say it very quickly tonight. But I hope you've got the principle here. Do you understand that? And then just finally then, in closing, the verses 15 to the end, if you check through verses 15 to 24, you will find that the word I comes more than 30 times. What's the matter? And notice that this is in the present tense. Up to verse 14, it's in the past tense. But now, there's a new struggle going on, which is a very present possibility. Why did Paul write in the present tense? Because it's always a possibility. Any one of us in this meeting tonight can fall into this trap at any time. And we need to constantly, constantly be on our guard. And the whole thing is that Paul is writing here, is he's saying, that I find I want to do things, then I find that I am not able to do those things. And what's happening, basically, is that he's discovering some other kind of law. And here I want to use the law in the sense that we use it in the scientific world. It's an unchanging principle. Take the law of gravity. The law of gravity works anywhere for anyone, anytime. They're what I would call the essentials of a law. It always works anywhere, anytime, for anyone. You, you can jump off a building anywhere in the world, any time of the day or night, and what will happen? The law will pull you down and you'll be a mess at the bottom. And you can go down all the way screaming, I don't believe in gravity, I don't believe in gravity. It'll still work. You see, there is a law which the Bible calls the law of sin and death and it pulls us down into death. Once we're struggling in our own strength to keep God's rules and regulations and we can any time step into this, any time step into this, once we start trying to do it ourselves and often when we become a Christian for a little while and we know a few Bible verses, we think, well, I can manage this bit myself now. It's where we think we're competent that we've got to be most careful. If you're a good musician, you can easily start to play in the flesh and immediately that quality of the spirit will disappear. If you're a good teacher, you can do it in the flesh and then that life goes out of it. If you can make good cakes, you can do it in the flesh and I don't know what happens to cakes when you do it in the flesh, but I'm sure they don't taste as nice. See, every part of our life, you see, we've got to come to the conviction of verse 18, I've discovered that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells nothing good. There's no part of me, nothing that can manage on its own. But every part of me, every minute of every day, has got to be wholly dependent upon Jesus. Now that's a deep discovery that we've got to make. And often in the distress...
excessive discouragement, we cry out, oh, who's going to deliver me? You know, and usually you can see the people who are going through it. They sort of come and they say, I'm not coming to the meeting anymore. You say, well, I'm a failure, I can't do it. Have you got to that place yet, or ever been through it? Yes, of course you have. The times I've said, I'm never going to preach again. More than once, I thought, oh, what a mess. And, and God has said, well, son, you can only do it effectively in my strength. Thought you'd learned that by now. Well, Father, I did learn it, but I had such a good run. I preached for so well, and I thought this time, well, I can manage this. I know the subject well. And it goes sort of, you know, you think, think, what happened? What went wrong? So you can't do anything at all, ever, that's effective in self-sufficiency. And we've got to deeply, 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 deeply learn it. And it takes a lot of learning. More than most of us realise. And Paul was aware that it was always an ever-present possibility. So he writes in the present tense. And once we're in that effort of self, we're a sitting duck for sin. Immediately sin says, oh, he's moving in self-effort. Oh, that's nice, and we'll soon have him. And sin just moves in. Wherever there's flesh, sin finds its opportunity and can come in and destroy us. And so we've got to deeply, deeply discover that flesh for us is death. And it's something to be feared and to be loathed and hated. I remember Martin Luther in one of his writings saying, he, says, he said in one of his writings, I fear myself more than a dozen popes. <laughs> he realised that he was his own worst enemy. And that's a constant battle. It's something we're never finished with. That's why it's in the present continuous tense. We never come to a place where the flesh is finished with. The old man's dead. Sin, well, in obedience we can deal with sin, but all that flesh, that constant, constant, constant danger of slipping into self-life. And so that's where we come to, towards the end of Romans 7, and Paul, as he, as it were, relives those agonies of trying so hard and failing so miserably and discovering that everything about Paul was utterly revolting. If it was self, makes him cry out, Oh, who will deliver me from the body of this death? And then he, he's found the answer. I thank God through Jesus Christ. There is an answer. You see, there's another law. And God wants us to come into this higher law that we may know a constant deliverance from the law of sin and death. But while we're in the flesh, while we're struggling in the self-effort, that law operates for anybody, anywhere, anytime, and there's nothing that you or anybody else can do about it. But praise God, there is a way out in Christ, and we'll talk about that next time. Let's just bow our heads in prayer for a moment, shall we? Now, Father, we so identify with Romans 7, it's so much what we experience. But having read Romans 6 and all, oh, that's what the sort of life I want to live. I want to live like Jesus. Every member yielded to God. And then we start trying to do it. And it's so hard learning this lesson. 
And having learnt it, it's so easy to slip back again into a measure of self-sufficiency. And Lord, we pray that as a church and as individuals we'll deeply learn this lesson. That in ourselves and of ourselves we can do nothing. There's no good in us. But we praise you that the law of sin and death is not the end of the story. We praise you there's another law, a mighty law which you've released to us through the Holy Spirit. And we would learn, Lord, how to live in the power of that law to the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. God, but on the other, with my flesh, the law of sin. There is, therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And here some Bibles add, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me or set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's one of the two places in Scripture where we read of a person or persons being unable to please God. It speaks in Hebrews 11.6 of those who are without faith. They cannot please God. And here we have those who are in the flesh, cannot please God. And we can be active in every way, and yet in the end we fail to please God and we utterly frustrate ourselves. And so it's so important that we understand this last sort of key and link to victorious Christian living, which is to distinguish clearly between the flesh and the spirit and to ensure that at all times we live and walk in the Spirit. The first of the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, you know Matthew 5, 6 and 7, the Sermon on the Mount, which is perhaps the great statement of life in the kingdom. And when we begin to look at this whole great uh, glorious life 
of living kingdom style, then the first beatitude simply says this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Or theirs is the kingdom of heaven, whichever you like to, however you like to put it. Now what does that mean? It means that we've got to come to a place where we are aware of our poverty, of our inability in spirit to live or move or think or act or do in the sufficiency of our own strength. And we come to a place where in real desperateness, in real earnestness, we seek to be governed and ruled over by the Holy Spirit. We've already had a warning. Now watch out. Don't start making decisions in your own strength. But make sure that it's God who has the management control of your life. Now let's again define what we mean by flesh. We've said it before, but it won't do us any harm to repeat it. One of the best definitions that I've ever heard or used is this short definition, flesh is simply this, it's simply that union of body and soul acting independently of God. It is man, if you like, moving in his own strength. It isn't necessarily with a wicked intention. In fact, it may be with the most noble intention in the world. And that's where flesh differs from sin. We've had three things in Romans 6, 7 and 8. We've had the old man, we've had sin, and now we're dealing with the flesh and we've got to distinguish between them. We've dealt with the other two and I won't go over it again tonight. But let's be clear what the flesh is. It's just self. It's independent I acting without God's Spirit having total control of me. And I can be doing it with the best motive in the world. That's why the flesh is such a dangerous, slippery sort of thing to have around. Flesh can lead and cause the most awful of sins. But it can also seem to be extremely respectable, very spiritual, and even uh, striving and struggling for very noble spiritual causes. And that's when it's at its most dangerous. Now, I often find it helpful to understand what it means to be in the flesh, to sort of look at the fall of Adam backwards, if you see what I mean. Adam, before the fall, was a man who walked in utter perfection. His life was just a sort of effulgence of the life of God. It was just God's life poured into him without any restriction and it flowed out of him again without any hindrance. And so he walked in perfection. He was a fit companion for God. He had no sin. There was no condemnation. There was no separation. So when God came, they could walk arm in arm in perfect fellowship because they were of the same nature. They had the same life. Now, the one condition for that life to continue to be pouring into Adam's life was that he was simply open and submitted to receive the life of God continually into his being. He had to live in a constant dependence upon the Father. Now the decision he made, which was so clever and slippery, it came from the serpent, 
And the decision that he made in apparently conscious will was that from now on he was going to step out of God dependence and he was going to become self-sufficient. He didn't deliberately choose, nor do I believe he wanted to choose to do anything wicked. He just wanted to live in independence. That was all he wanted. He wanted to be self-sufficient. And I believe he was deceived by the evil one to think that he was strong enough in himself to carry on with the same quality of life, drawing on his own strength. It speaks in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 18, and it speaks there about being cut off or alienated from the life of God. And as soon as that happened, it says he became darkened in his understanding. And then we get the whole great slide. And once man has stepped out from under God dependence and become self-sufficient, he's vulnerable. And sin, like a, like a great crouching lion, is waiting to devour him. You remember how God warned uh, Abel, when Abel, when, sorry, God warned Cain, when Cain got angry about his sacrifice not being received. God said, now watch it, Cain, sin is lying crouching at the door, like a sort of a lion waiting to grab him and devour him. And once we step out from under God dependence and become a separate being, we are immediately vulnerable to that sort of uh, lurking lion, sin, who will come and pounce upon us. And as a result, sin can just come in and have its way and there's nothing we can do to stop it. We can try and we can struggle and we can fight and we can discipline and we can make more effort and we can try a bit harder but there's one thing flesh cannot do, flesh cannot resist sin. And that's why as soon as we're in the flesh we're immediately into sin. One follows the other but they're not the same. So all that our Adam had to do was to step out from under God to become a man of the flesh with the same intention which was to go on living the same perfect life but now in the strength of his flesh he couldn't do it. Sin was there, bang. And he was down and the devourer was upon him and through that decision of independence sin entered into the world and death by sin and sin passed upon Death passed upon all men because all have sinned. Now we've got to see that as an as a absolutely foundational thing so that we come to fear and hate the flesh as much as God does. Even a good thing done the wrong way is in fact unrighteousness in the sight of God. God said, even your righteousnesses are as filthy rags in my sight. Why? Because they were done in the strength of self-effort. And that's the last great thing that we've got to see. And we've got to fear. So that instead of being men, trying hard to be good Christians, or trying hard to do the will of God, or trying hard to please God, we realise that once we're in this awful position of struggling in our own strength, we're as good as defeated. We are defeated. We've had it. Now the reversal is that we come out of self-sufficiency, out of independence, out of self-government, out of self-trying, out of self-effort. And we pass through the cross where God slays the old man and takes away the guilt and penalty of sin. Sin itself 
is, its power and reign is broken in our lives, we pass through the cross and we come back to where Adam was before he fell. But we have no more ability to walk right in God than Adam had if we think that for a moment we can carry on in our own strength. And that's why Paul writes this in the present continuous tense, because it's a constant temptation. It's constantly a danger that we can easily fall into, especially when we've had a measure of experience. God's used us for a while. God's Spirit's enabled us to do certain things. We think, oh, I can manage on my own now. That's exactly the mistake that Adam made. He'd been living, I don't know how many years, victoriously. He said, well, I'm as good as God which in a sense was true, the quality of his life was the same as God's life. He thought, well, I don't need any more to be under God. I can do this by myself. And his intention was to carry on in the same quality of life, but to have the added privilege of saying, well, I'm doing it myself now. Look, Dad, no hands. <laughs> Bang! <laughs> that's, what, that's what it's all about, beloved. And that we have to see with great clarity. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, now while I'm in the flesh, and you'll notice if you care to count it up from verse 15 to verse 24 in Romans 7, the word I comes more than 30 times. Paul here is dealing with eye trouble. He tells us in verse 18... Some, I like the King James here. It's much stronger and, and I think clearer than this particular translation. He says, I am fully persuaded that in me, that is in my flesh, there dwells no good thing. That is when Paul's on his best behaviour, when Paul's most spiritual in his own strength, he said there's nothing good in it at all. Not a thing. There's nothing that's any good to God. In fact, God hates the whole lot. And Paul, trying his best, doing his hardest, dedicated in his own strength to serve God, he said, that's what God hates more than anything. He said, now I've come to hate it just as, God, just as much as God. I've been fully persuaded, I'm completely convinced that, 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 that in my flesh there dwells nothing good. He says, now whenever I get in the flesh, I find that sin's at work within me. It's a, it's a law. In the beginning, he's dealing to be the kind of person which I want to be, and which I know God wants me to be. And I always think of this, uh, and I've illustrated this before to some of you, I always think of this, it's like someone trying to fly by their own strength. And you've, if you've read anything about the history of aviation, you remember all these various bird machines which people made. And usually they were Frenchmen. I think it's something to do with the French air or the wine or something, I don't know. But they made all these fantastic uh, flying bird things and then they would go, you know, they were so confident it would work. One fellow even went to the top of the Eiffel Tower and jumped off. And with absolute dedication, he flapped his arms like crazy and thought he was going to fly by his own strength. But what happened? He killed himself. You see... 
these men could see these terrific birds just flying so easy, and they wanted to be like them. And so with, with real dedication and with tremendous ingenuity and with tremendous physical effort, they were going to try and overcome this law of gravity. But the mistake they made was trying to do it in their own strength. And they used to get up and sort of flap their wings like this and try, but always it ended the same way. You see, there was no way that by their own strength they could ever triumph over the law of gravity. Then one day man discovered the laws of aerodynamics and the first principle, as you possibly know, is that if you blow a, a wind over the surface, a curved surface, you cause a partial vacuum underneath and actually you can blow over the top and the thing will lift. It's very simple, really. And they discovered, if you like, the power of the wind. And it's an amazing thing these days to go to a great jumbo jet weighing hundreds of tons and hundreds of people pile in and you just sit back in a reasonably comfortable chair. Usually there's not enough leg room for me and you just relax. I've never even been to the front to see if there's a pilot. <laughs> and I've never said, excuse me, have you got a license to drive this thing? You see, there's an element of faith in it. You put yourself into the hands of a principle which is powerful and mighty. You put yourself into the hands of someone whom you trust and he exploits this glorious new law, the law of aerodynamics and causes you, while you remain in the plane, don't open the door and tempt providence because I tell you the law is still working outside. But while you're in the plane, it's just as if gravity never existed. You look out the window and there, thousands of feet below, is the earth beneath and you couldn't even jump more than three feet off it before but now you've found a new law a new principle's working and you just rest in the power of that law now that's what Paul's speaking about here as we go on into Romans 8 he says in verse 1 and this is a very important verse for you to get hold of because we're now moving into the answer to this kind of struggle. What is the answer? The answer is in Christ Jesus. It's not in the flesh. It's not in trying harder. It's not going to another conference or getting someone more powerful to pray for you. The answer is in Christ Jesus. He's like the plane in our illustration. And it says in verse 1, There is therefore now... No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, you may feel an utter failure as a Christian. You may be a total disaster. You've tried so hard and so many times that you've just, you've given up. And you feel, well, I, I can't draw near to God. But, beloved, until you draw near to God, there's no answer to the mess you're in. And God will receive you Whatever your condition, whatever your state, however often you've tried and failed, God is there to receive you. And you've got to get hold of this, because this is the beginning of the answer. And until you grasp this, there's no point in going any further. There's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. None at all. And you can come to Christ Jesus, just as you are, and say, Lord, I'm just coming as I am. He says, that's fine, come. Now you've discovered what it is to be poor in spirit. Now you've discovered how useless it is to try in the flesh. Now you've discovered how utterly 
utterly hopeless it is to try and be a big strong I, come. Come. And you come into Christ Jesus. Now, until you can take that step, you're never going to get anywhere. It's like, to change the illustration, it's like in John 15 when Jesus said, I am the vine, you're the branches, severed from me, you can do how much? Nothing. It's like a a branch being cut off from a living vine. What happens to it? Immediately it dies. Now the only answer, if a branch gets cut off, is to graft it quickly into a living stock and then it can draw life from the stock and it can live. If you don't do that, what happens to it? It withers and it dies. Now, if that branch starts to argue, saying, well, I'm not worthy to be grafted into such a beautiful vine, I tell you, if you don't get moving, you're dead. Say, well, let me just be t- a respectful two inches away. Because I don't feel worthy to come any nearer. Well, I tell you, the sap does not jump the gap. <laughs> you either get in, ride in, or you've had it. And that's where many Christians stumble. They do not believe the acceptance that they have in God. They don't believe it. They read it, they memorise it, they can even teach it to others, but in their own heart, there's still a measure of condemnation. How can God really totally receive me? Well, the answer is he does. You either believe it or you don't. You say, but it's not reasonable. Who cares about that? God's decided to love you. Enjoy it. (laughs) He's decided to love you, beloved, before the foundation of the world... He chose you in love. That's what the Bible says. Before you existed, he saw you, knew you, and chose you in love. Now that's what the Bible says. Do you believe it or don't you? And because of his choosing, you have ready access into the beloved. That's what it says in Ephesians 2. By the one spirit, we have access into the beloved. And you've got to believe it. And you've got to come and say, Lord, I'm coming right in. He says, come. And in Christ Jesus, things are different. Now, if you're trying to qualify by performance, which many Christians do, you will never feel worthy to come. And so you go round and round in the same continuous syndrome of trying and failing, trying and failing, trying and failing, and the devil gets you going down and down and down and down the tube of condemnation and to say, I give up, it's no use me trying to be a Christian. And you say, well, they're all hypocrites anyway. No, they're not. You say, well, they don't, they're not perfect. Well, who said they were? Who said they were? They just believe that God receives people in love without any reason or right of access whatsoever except God's amazing love and grace. And so you just come. Now, until you can see that, you dare not come. Well, I'll clean myself up a bit first. Come. Because the answer is in Christ Jesus. Now, let's go on. Verse 2 of Romans 8. For the law of the spirit of life, where is it? In the commitment class? No. No. In Dale's Bible week? No. For the law of the spirit of life, where is it? In Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death.
Amen. So there you find the power of the Spirit operating for those who are in Christ Jesus and it just lifts you above and continues to keep you above the law of sin and death. Now here we're talking about two laws which, if you like, are, are operating one against the other. But the, the law of the Spirit in Christ Jesus is the more powerful law. It can lift you right out of your sin and right out of your failure, right out of your, your old ways and weaknesses, and it can lift you up above the whole lot. Now it can do it. Now it's a continual thing. And you've got to remain in the plane. Don't say, oh, this looks easy flying up here. <laughs> I could do it by myself. I'll open the door and step out. <laughs> and that's what we're tempted to do. You see, we're, three days I haven't shouted at the wife. I must be getting better. Watch out. <laughs> <laughs> he that thinks that he can stand, says the Bible, let him take heed lest he falls. You will never in yourself be any better than you are at your worst point of failure. You will never change. Never. You'll never be able to say, oh, haven't I grown, or aren't I so much stronger and better than I was when I was first saved. God will never allow you to say that. All you can say is what Paul said. He said, I am what I am by the grace of God. It's the continual supply of God's divine power freely given to me which enables me to live the way that I do. And how does Paul live? He lives, we're told in 2 Corinthians 2, his life is a continual pageant of triumph. That's what he says. He says, God, thank his wonderful name, has made my life a continual pageant of triumph. Now, at the same time, Paul knows perfectly well that if he ever, ever gets into I, he's as much a failure and as goes down the drain as much as anybody else. Sin comes straight in and boom, he's down. And that with Paul after 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, raising the dead, seeing whole cities turned upside down, all these mighty experiences, he knows perfectly well that minute by minute, every day, he's got to walk carefully and fearfully, lest by any chance he might slip over into the flesh and find himself moving in self-sufficiency. And if he does, he would fall as badly at the end of 30 years of wonderful Christian service as he would the first day that he was saved. Always and continually we have to walk in this continuous total dependence upon God. But while we're in the plane, resting back in the love and worship of God, we find the power of the Spirit works and we can soar above it all. Now, you only have to worry about today because you may die today, so don't worry about it. Just think about today and say, well, I'm going to believe God for this hour, for this morning, this afternoon, this day. Jesus said, sufficient is today and the trouble thereof because tomorrow may never come. So don't think in terms of saying, right, I'm going to get hold of this and for the next ten years I'm going to be victorious. Don't think that way. Let God home in on one specific failure in your life and you believe God for victory. And believe God for victory minute by minute 
moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, and let it be a continual, continual walking in dependence upon God. And you'll find it'll work. Now, it's impossible for us to live partly in the flesh and partly in the spirit. And we're told something else very important in verse 5. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Now you cannot walk in the spirit, you cannot live in the spirit with a mind that's taken up with the things of the flesh. It says in the Colossian letter, chapter 3, it says, set your mind on the things which are above where Christ sits at the right hand of God. And so there has to be a setting of the mind, there has to be a, a desire in your spirit and heart to want the things of God. And if you're taken up with the things of this life, if you're revolving all the time on the things of this life and of the flesh and of the, of the me and the now, then it's impossible for you to stay in the spirit. You can't do it. If you have a career, well, it must simply be an appendage to your spiritual life in God. That doesn't mean you're careless about your career. I don't mean that because, but your motivation in your career, in your studies, in your working about the house and polishing the furniture, whatever it is, your motivation is not to be house proud and say, oh, what a wonderful so-and-so I am. Your motivation is to say, I'm doing this for the glory of God. If you're a student, you study to glorify God in your studies. And so although outwardly you may seem to be very dedicated to things which are of this world, your motivation is totally different. Your mind is set on the things which are above. And you say, Lord, I'm doing this to your glory. I've got no self-interest in it. I only want to glorify the King. If you get promotion, or if you're offered promotion, you judge it not fleshily but spiritually. Now, does this benefit you, Lord? Is it to the glory of your kingdom? Will it profit your purposes in my life and in the church or whatever it is? And you have to get a yes from God according to the Spirit, not according to the flesh. That's what it means in Romans 12 too, when it says you've got to be transformed in your mind. You've got to start thinking entirely differently. Because if you're of the world, you say, well, of course you want to get promoted. Everybody wants to get to the top, but not necessarily. Not if it's the will of God for your life. Maybe God's will for you to go down. And so you think quite differently. And if the mind's fleshy in its thinking, then your life will continue to be fleshy in its function and there's no way out of that. Let's read on. I'm nearly finished. For those... In verse 5... For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Alright? Now here's verse 6. For the mind set on the flesh is death. So if your mind set on the flesh, which is basically a self-interested setting of the mind, then that will lead you to death. You can't get into the plane and you can't experience the power 
of this glorious new law. It disqualifies you immediately. The mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile towards God. That is, when God starts to bring into your life his will and his purpose, you are immediately at conflict with it because you've got a mind that thinks according to the flesh. And it's so easy to reason and rationalise and be at war with God and what he wants to do in your life. Say, this isn't going to profit, profit me. Well, what's that got to do with it? Actually, it will, but the trouble is you can't see that it will. And so you cannot make a judgment which is a fleshy judgment where you decide whether it's good for you or whether it isn't good for you. You don't make any such decision. You let God decide. You say, Lord, I'm not capable of thinking through the right and the wrong of this. I leave that to you and to your judgment. And often what seems most wrong is right. That's why a mind set on the flesh cannot please God because you'll make all sorts of wrong judgments you'll come to self-gratifying or self-pleasing uh, decisions the world will applaud you and say that's very sensible but that's not the bar of judgment the bar of judgment is what is the will of God for your life and so the way our mind functions is absolutely critical here and if we feel competent in ourselves to make rational judgments, then we are still, in our minds at least, men of the flesh, and we cannot ever, ever live in the Spirit. It's impossible. We can't please God. Now, by saying that, I do not mean that we cease to think and become mental cabbages. I don't mean that at all. But we bring our minds under the rule of God. We are renewed in the spirit of our minds. We are transformed in our minds and we start to think the way God thinks. We start to have the mind of Christ. He was a brilliant thinker, I'm sure you would agree with that, but he thought the way Father wanted him to think. The same was true of Paul after his conversion. Talk about a brilliant mind. But he learnt, and he tells us it so plainly in the first three chapters of, Corinth, of the Corinthian letter, how dangerous it is to have a naturally able mind. But to have an able mind under the rule of the Spirit is tremendous. And a great blessing to the whole church of Jesus Christ. So we've got to allow God to show us the way that we are thinking. And it's the way we think which is going to decide finally the way we act. And that's where many people have a problem. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God for it does not subject itself to the law of God. It subjects itself to the law of what seems reasonable to me. And that's a fatal decision. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And once we've learned to walk not in the flesh, then is now a very real possibility for us 
to be those who will walk in the Spirit. But the flesh has got to be dealt with first. And only then can we start to be those who will walk in the Spirit. Well, how do we walk in the Spirit? Well, I think I'd better tell you next time. <laughs> Otherwise, we'll be here all night. But let's just stop there. Let's just be still before God.